From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Thanks, Kyle. Nary wouldn't exist without that guy. I remember sitting in the business meeting back in Billings 13 years ago, and Kyle was there, and it took us 13 years to get him on the stage. So, (laughs) thank you. So did you think of any of your bad ideas? We explored this last week, like some of the worst ideas you ever had. I hope, you, I hope that was good date night fodder for you or something. I thought of one more that I thought might be worth sharing. It was when I was 19. I was pretty new to the new church. I was very new to the church scene and trying to get serious about following Jesus, which means I didn't have any friends because all my high school friends were like, eh, don't want anything to do with you. You become weird. And I was also didn't understand church culture. Uh, but I was working for Coke. I wasn't going to school. And there was one of the guys that I worked with, his name was Corey. He had an interest enough in God that he was going to church with me, and he was a, a single dad, just went through this really ugly breakup with a girlfriend, and so he and I, I suppose it was in that spring after I graduated high school, like the, the following year, that we decided to get an apartment together in Billings, and I don't think we were there very long before we had this idea, and it's one of those in hindsight things, and the idea was we wanted to get a couple jet skis. Like this was early, like think 1998, the sit-down style jet skis. Uh, But in hindsight, like neither one of us had ever been on one, and I hate water. (laughs) Like like, I have a friend who says like water just gives him this feeling of impending doom, and I completely relate. When I was a little guy, we went water skiing, and my dad told me don't let go of the rope, and I didn't even when I crashed, and I like torpedoed under the water for a long time, and then I got up, and my swimming trunks were on my ankles, and I was in seaweed, and it was just a nightmare. So I don't even like open water. I don't like boats and jet skis. I've done it. I don't care for it, but we were going to get jet skis because we're 19, and what I remember was the main motivator was, man, that would be fun to go meet girls in Coeur d'Alene with a jet ski. Which, like, do you know how far Billings is from Coeur d'Alene? It's, like, it's one of those, like, what does it cost to rent a jet ski two days a year in Coeur d'Alene versus buy one? But all the same, we went down to the Kawasaki dealership, and of course, the guys were very kind to give us the little pamphlets where you could sign up for in-house financing at, like, 12% interest. We could each have a jet ski. And we were in deep. Like, we were, we were pretty serious. And then he pointed out that we would need a trailer, we're like, oh, well, that's another few grand. And then even we were smart enough to know, like, well, that doesn't seem smart for us to split the trailer, so who buys the trailer? And we were kind of going back and forth on that. But then we solved that problem because what we realized was one person was going to have to buy a trailer and someone else was going to have to buy something to pull the trailer. Because <laughs> his car was a 1995 Nissan Altima four-door. Mine was a 1965 two-door Chevy Impala. Neither one of us even had a hitch on our vehicle. So the guy's like, wait a minute, so you, you can't buy them because you don't actually have a way to leave with them. We're like, well, could you store them for us? And we didn't actually have that conversation. So we went home, 
because we didn't have, we literally couldn't buy one, and the plan was, as we kind of worked it out, like, we'll each buy one separate, and then you'll buy the trailer, and I'll buy a truck, and we're working all this out in our head because, you know, we were making big money at Coca-Cola as introductory employees at a time when minimum wage was like 10 bucks an hour. So I got home, and I had an, 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 my, one of my dad's sisters, who at the time I was talking to quite a bit, she, she was the one that kind of helped me get connected in church world, and her husband, Scott, is this guy that I really respect, really good business thinker, and and so I called my aunt, and I was telling her about this plan. And in hindsight, like, I know what happened. There was this point where she's like, I'm going to let you talk to Scott, her husband. So put down the phone, and uh, Scott gets on the phone, and I start, and just to give you context for Scott, Scott started his first business when he was 18. Uh, he's been very successful with business. I think he's, I, th- I don't think, I know he's like a libertarian within his kind of political beliefs and values and financial values. And so I'm pitching this idea to Scott, and there was this point when I finally took a breath at the end. He, he, just, he said, Adam, that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. <laughs> and that's last I remember about the whole jet ski. Which I'm, I often think about that. Can, I, can you imagine, Adam, if you'd assigned a three-year note on a stupid jet ski and how that would have changed the course of things? I wouldn't be able to quit and go back to school. There's lots of things that would have changed because of that. But I bring all that up, and I hope you have your own stupid version stories that not only brought pain, but also that you can see God rescued you from. I bring all that up because what we've been exploring for a couple weeks now is this question of, like, what if the most powerful thing in the world uh, isn't a military, and it's not a military tool, and it's not any one person or any one government? What if the most powerful things in the world are ideas? And, and whether you follow Jesus or not, and we really try to make this a place that's safe for you either way, what, what, what if, when things are going really well, In the background, like the hidden code running the computer, are some ideas that are good ones? And what if sometimes life affords us these opportunities where things are going very poorly? And and, and one of the things that God invites us to do, whether we do that with him or not, is to go, what, what, what are the hidden codes? What are the hidden ideas that are driving this pain that are actually the fundamental problem? And what we've been exploring for a couple of weeks is in this Gospel of Matthew story where it seems like in this middle kind of fulcrum point of, of Matthew, it's not the mathematical middle, but in the middle, what's really going on here is Jesus has brought the conversation and Matthew has brought the conversation to this conversation about ideas, good ones and bad ones. And I think as big as of a question and as big of an idea as last week's was, which I think is maybe the most important idea in the history of the world, it seems like one last time Jesus is bringing a, a, a question, an idea to the table, and it may not be maybe the most important, but it's definitely the most difficult. And so what I want to do is I want to pray and we'll jump into that. God, Lord, we all show up with such different contexts to our lives, and some of us are on top of the world, and some of us feel like the world's crushing us. Um, Some of us feel great autonomy in our circumstances right now, and some of us feel like we're just, we can't control anything. And so, God, my my prayer would be that, uh, God, I just believe that whether we identify with you or not, that when we bring you an offering of our time and attention, uh, that you reward that. And so pray that that would be what happens uh, for everyone in the room here for the time that remains and the time as a whole. Amen. So what's the idea? Well, let's just go back to Matthew, and well, Kyle did a great job with it. I want to look at what, in my opinion, is kind of the center of this. Is Here we go, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone had become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. 
Well, what's the idea? Uh, some friends and I just finished up reading what I think is one of the most important books I've ever read, a book called uh, The Celebration of Discipline. Richard Foster is this phenomenal thinker. It's a 40-year-old book. If you're stuck, I can't think of a better book to recommend to bring new practices into your life. If you're brand new, it's a great book to start out. But he says in, in The Celebration of Discipline, one of his disciplines, and I remember when I saw the chapter title, I was like, ugh, I don't want to read that, but I think it might be, the, for me, the most powerful chapter in the book. It's what he calls The Discipline of Submission. Now I get it, especially if you're a woman, this, this is kind of a trigger word. It's one that we often have to nuance. Here's how he nuances it. Go to that next slide, Donnie. He says, the discipline of submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. What if what Jesus is exploring here is this, this strategy for controlling everything is actually kind of a brutal strategy? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I listen to people talk about ideas, I instantly get distracted by the nuance of the ideas. And so what I want to do is, before we dive into this, is just speak to the nuance. Because if we're going to talk about this, this discipline of submission or surrender, I think it also, for me, it helps. It's kind of like the sales idea of if you can name the reasons why not to buy the product for them, that'll actually help them. In the same way, I think, it, it, for me, it helps to name, like, okay, but what are the problems with this theory of submission or this, this discipline of submission? So I want to illustrate it this way, which will take me just a second, uh, but, but to create, if you will, the continuum uh, behind all this. I want to do that by the high technology of parachute cord. Just to illustrate, because I, I think there's a, for me, there's a tension here that has to be observed uh, before we really dig into this. So, I'm also terrible at tying knots, because along with open water, climbing is a sport that's never appealed to me. <laughs> okay. So, for me, it starts by going, okay, uh, if at one end of the spectrum, is this thing that you might call being a control freak. Uh, I don't know anything about this, but I've, 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 I've heard a lot about it before. Right, at one, at one extreme is this. How many of you go like, yeah, that's me. Don't elbow them, just let them raise their hand on their own. <laughs> it's always ironic. We're like, how is it that, so, I had so many couples go like, I, and he didn't even have to be elbowed. And I'm like, I think that makes you the control freak, but that's a <laughs> separate conversation. So there's this extreme. And I think we can probably all relate to this, whether we're on the giving or the receiving end of it. But for me, what's helpful is to go, okay, but before you crush me for being a control freak and caring about details and all that stuff, can we talk about the other extreme? And I realize that for some of you, this is legitimately your struggle. I, I know people who, they don't struggle being a control freak, they, they struggle to believe that they matter. So what, what title do you give this one over here? Like if control freak is one bad extreme, what's the other end of that spectrum? Any ideas? Anybody got a word for it? No? Passive? Passive? Abdication of leadership, maybe? What, what, what'd you say? He said Broncos fan. Broncos fan? <laughs> I don't know what that... Uh, my, my word for it, this is because I'm a type 1, is lame-o. So, <laughs> but I, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because I get that for some people this is, this is real and this is a problem. There's this like really leaning into the fact like, no, my, I should have an opinion. It's my right to have an opinion. I do matter. Those of you Enneagram nines, like the dark side of that can happen over here. But I do all that to say, okay, so we're not talking about either extreme. And I think we have to allow that Jesus isn't either. Like, so, so what is healthy? What are we talking about? 
it's driving me crazy that I can't find the center of the string, but I'm gonna try to put something in the center. I actually had someone come up to me last service, like, that was a great sermon, but man, it drove me crazy that the thing wasn't in the center. So, am I in the center? I should have measured it. But let's just say, oh. Where did the thing go? Okay. This is also driving me crazy. Am I in the center? Oh, oh thanks, Piper. Piper? Piper, you've got your dad's disease. Congratulations. <laughs> okay. Something here. What is this? I think another question we have to ask is when Jesus says die to yourself, is he speaking literally? Like, is he literally talking about dying? Is he speaking metaphorically? Is this more of a kind of a modern psychological principle? And I think it's, for me, it's become important in these last couple of years to say the answer is yes. Like, Matthew's original audience isn't talking about modern day psychology, not that there's anything wrong with that. They're literally being confronted with do I die or not? Like, to follow Jesus is to be killed, it's to be martyred. So in one sense, he's being very direct. In another sense, I think it's very fair to say, like, this is a psychological principle. It shows up in marriage, it shows up in leadership, it shows up in everything. Like, somehow this idea of trusting God has to find its way into the healthy life. So how do we do this? Well, this is where I want to say enter Lent. I know some of you have probably been hearing us allude to it, and we're doing this Ash Wednesday thing, and there's some of you don't have any context. And months ago, as I was, had a, a week of a planning week, and it occurred to me, like, wait a minute. As a control freak, I can control the flow of the Matthew narrative and line it up with this actual topic, and I think the two complement each other well. Why? Well, how did Lent come about? Like, where did it come from? I've spent considerable time, I can't claim to be an exhaustive expert, but best I understand, from very, very early in church history, we're talking like decades removed from Jesus' resurrection, baptism began to flow most commonly to Easter Sunday. People were baptized mostly on Easter Sunday, and the method for that got more and more intense. Why? Well, part of it was because to become a Christian was to be, to be killed, to be martyred. And so it was a closed group. Hannah just wrote an exceptional paper on this for one of her classes. You can ask her for it. It was a closed group, and it was a long vetting process because we had to make sure that you were actually one of us, not a snitch. And so the process of baptism or getting baptized could be as long as three years. But it really intensified in the days before Easter. Another iteration that came along was people getting kicked out of church was a real thing. Not for trivial things, not for trivial differences. Uh, the, the biggest one was uh, you, you were faced with martyrdom, you denied Christ to save your life, so you're out. And so there was a real process and a real problem of, okay, but what happens when one of those people wants back in? Well, part of what happened, of course, were some processes by which they determined, like, okay, this time they mean it. That, too, intensified in the days leading up to Easter, and actually the first practice of Ash Wednesday happened with those people. What happened was the application of the, of the, the ashen cross on a forehead was specifically designated for people who had once been kicked out but were asking back in, and it was a way of saying, hey, these people, they mean it this time. It was a way of publicly declaring, like, okay, I'll do it on my forehead with ash. I'm in. Well, in the 5th century, so we're talking 400s, 
What happened was these traditions kind of amalgamated into a more universal one within the church. So historically, literally, in the 400s, Lent started to get practiced. What they did is they went, wait a minute, this, this, this would be good for all of us. Having this hyper-focused kind of training camp season for the life of faith would be good for all of us. Why? Why Lent? Well, I mean, let's just go back to that last phrase. Why do we do training camp? Why do, why do high school sports get this season of intensified practice? Isn't it on the one hand an observation? Why, why do professionals go away for this hyper-focused training? Well, it's on the one hand, it's this observation like, I can't do this all the time, but I can learn things that I carry with me all the time. Why are weekends away for couples such a big deal? Why do we do retreats with students who we have someone in the room who are just on one? Why do we do family vacations? Again, it's the same principle. We're going we're gonna to do things, we're going to build things, we're going to create things, whether they're skills or relational dynamics, and, 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 and the way that we're building them, isn't it sustainable? Like, we, we can't go on vacation 365 days a year, but we can go on it for a week to build this skill set. How many of you have ever done, like, dry January? Anybody ever done that? It's a growing thing. Why? What well, has something to do with making sure that you still have the ability to say no to yourself, doesn't it? Or, or how many of you ever, like, your way of getting into shape is archery season? So, like, no gym, no gym, no gym. Oh, no, it's June and you get back to the gym. Or, or maybe your way of getting into shape is you sign up for a race. Some of you can probably look back on and like, now you have a pattern of staying in shape, but it was actually initially this race you signed up with, and that created the motivation. Why Lent? Go to that next slide. What if the Jesus way requires the ability to tell your flesh no so you can tell God yes? But, but what if part of what's going on with Lent is there's this, there's this commitment that I'm, I'm going to build this season of hyper-intense saying no to self so that I can carry with me that skill the rest of the year. Just like I'm going to go on a weekend away with my spouse so that that relational dynamic, so that we can kind of burn the energy of that for the next six months. What if that's why we do Lent? This season of hyper-intense focus to build certain skills. Or, or you could say it this way. In hindsight, next slide. In hindsight, where is God most easily found? I want to be careful there. It's not always, and sometimes this place doesn't help us find God, but, but when you reflect upon your own life, w when is God's voice most likely to be heard? Isn't it the desert, uh, the wilderness? One of the books I read months ago to prepare for all this on a personal level as well was written by an Anglican, and his, his running metaphor was, was we enter into the wilderness because in the wilderness is where, where we're most likely to meet God. So it's this season where we're, for us, we're, we're eliminating some things in order to say, like, God, I'm here. Please do some talking. I was on, some, on a ride with some friends about a month ago, and there was a point where uh, two of us had dogs with us, so we had to cut off short on the ride, and the other ones kept going. And th uh, there was this other point where he and I stopped because it's snowy and kind of slow right now. And my friend, Meany, said, uh, so Adam, like, why Advent? Why Lent? Why Ash Wednesday? Why communion every week? And there's a way of asking those questions that leave me to think that you hate them, and there's a way of asking them that comes across as genuinely curious, and frankly, he came across as genuinely curious, and so I said, well, actually, I've, I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh, we're also, by the way, working on a survey, because I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. But I said, uh, before I answer your question, I, I, I want you to think about, like, has it been helpful? 
And so we went down this little trail and we stopped again and I said, okay, so here's, here's my best attempt at an answer. I said, I, I used to think that following Jesus was easy. And honestly, I still can't decide. I think it might have been easier in the cultural moment before this moment for me in Helena, Montana in 2019. I can't tell. I still haven't really been able to suss out if there's stuff I have to repent of from that or was it just a different world and it was easier. But whatever is true about the past, I'm convinced it's, it's, it's not easy anymore. The prevailing cultural winds aren't the same. The dynamics have changed that I'm convinced and maybe it's just because I'm getting old that there's a greater intentionality required now than was in 2019. And so I think things like Lent have a way of going, hey, I can't practice football three days a, three days a week for forever. I just met with a, a, a SEAL a, a few weeks ago and he was explaining like, man, I watched those guys train who are in, in school now in BUDS and I can't help but think, I could never do that now, maybe for a day. But in a season, it built a skill set that still carries me 15 years later in my SEAL career. What if Lent's a way of leaning into that? Uh, I've developed a friendship with a guy named Father Moses. He's the Russian Orthodox priest in Billings. He's about my age. Really, really intriguing guy, especially because he wasn't raised Orthodox. Uh, he he, he kind of chose that in his 20s. We were meeting recently, and I, I'd said to him, I was like, hey, and I don't, I don't ever call him by name because his name's Father Moses, and for me, is a, it's still weird to call someone Father something. So you know how you do those conversations? Like, I don't know your name. I think I can have a whole conversation. I think I can have a whole friendship without referring you by name. So I... <laughs> I gotta figure that one out. Uh, but, so we sat down and, and I said, I think from now on, when someone asks me about Eastern Orthodoxy, I'm just gonna say, hey, go try their food calendar for a month and then let's talk. Now that's loaded and we'll come back to that later. But he, but he, he goes, hmm, hmm. You know, it's this guy who has way more uh, understanding of all this stuff. He said, I think we can zoom out further. I said, okay, so, so try me. He said, Adam, what, what, what's the root word behind the word asceticism? I didn't know. He said, the word behind asceticism is, is, is suffering. Like that's, that's the idea behind the English equivalent. And he said, to understand Eastern Orthodoxy is to understand their rugged commitment to asceticism. And he went on to tell me a historical tale, and I'll, I'll share it with you. He said, in the early church, so I just want you to think of like their tradition. This is the way they process it. This is what they understand themselves to be stewarding. He said, in the early church, suffering was unavoidable. And what we recognize is that spiritual formation was really driven by suffering. Like they, they lived by definition, their life was in the wilderness. He said, then what happened was when Constantine came to power, there's some very good things about that. I think we have to allow that. But when Constantine came to power and Christianity became the religion of the empire, one of the things that quickly dissipated was suffering. He said the desert church fathers and mothers, the observation they made, and he allowed, it can become masochistic, it can become unhealthy, but the desert church fathers and mothers, what they observed was, wait a minute, our formation is slowing down because we're not suffering in the way we used to, and so the reason they went into the desert, or what they would call, uh, what we would call the desert, they would call the wilderness, was there was this attempt to go, wait a minute, it's in self-denial that God's voice becomes most apparent. And so they, in their understanding, that they're stewarding that tradition. And so he said, really, the Eastern Orthodox food calendar is an extension of asceticism because what we believe is that it's in the denial of self. And again, not a suffering thing. 
It's, I mean, well, it is a suffering, but that much like this, this whole asceticism thing happens on its own continuum. Can it get unhealthy? Of course it can. Can uh, gluttony get unhealthy? Of course it can. So we can criticize Eastern Orthodoxy for at times going to the extreme, but I'm going to argue Western Protestantism in particular is also guilty of an extreme, but it's the opposite one. We wonder where God is in the midst of suffering. They say you go to suffering to find God. For example, the Eastern Orthodox food calendar, and I could nerd out and I'd love to for a long time, but I won't. Uh, I, along with some friends, started messing around with fasting in September, in January, wanted to up the ante on myself, but didn't want to up the ante on not eating, and so I transitioned to the Eastern Orthodox calendar in January. And what it really amounts to, and, and there's nuances, uh, but what it really amounts to is, well, first of all, I said to Father Moses, I said, uh, so, so how often do you guys fast? Because I said, my calendar, it's like 120 days a year. And he goes, ah, oh, that's the Greek calendar, they're liberal. I don't mean that politically, please don't hear that. He said, I'm Russian Orthodox. For us, it's a little over 50% of the year. Now, you hear fasting and what comes to mind. This is what I want to explore on Ash Wednesday. We think no food, like sunken eyes, feel like crud. That's not what they mean by fasting. Their fasting calendar, and again, there's four major feasts, but in general, and there's nuance to this, but in general, every Wednesday and every Friday, they eat vegan. That's kind of the gist of it doesn't mean they don't eat. Uh, it, d- it doesn't mean that they go through the day starving. Their goal is stop eating while you're still hungry and, and kind of live that day not starving, but just on this side of hungry. Why? Because they would say that nagging sense drives what they would call theosis, which is really this, this union with God. In other words, they would say that nagging sense is a built-in reminder of the presence of God and it's a built-in driver to a more prayerful, connected, communion with Christ kind of life. Why Lent? Well, part of the way we can look at it is it's this understanding that that saying no to self is a muscle we build, that saying no to self is, is something that we, we have to be able to do. Or there's this idea of fight entropy. My first, one of my first peers uh, in church world was a guy named Mitch Garrison. He was a genius. He was my age. He was the intern at the church where I became an intern. He actually led the college and career group where Teresa and I met. Uh, he used to always say, someday I'm gonna create a shirt. I, wonder, I sometimes wonder, did he ever create it? I'm gonna, someday I'm gonna create a shirt that just says fight entropy. Well, I'm not a scientist, but what is entropy for a rudimentary noob like me? It's this idea that everything flows from order to disorder. It's why your house doesn't stay clean. <laughs> but, but entropy, I think, in the spiritual life, and the why behind Lent is to say that sin creeps and it seeps. That much like someone would do dry January out of an effort to go, wait a minute, Have I become an alcoholic? Do I still have the ability to say no? There's this thing called COVID that's just happened and suddenly, that's a separate conversation. But but in the same way, uh, Lent is this way of going, how has sin entered into my life? I want to be very careful about this one because I don't want to shame you, but here's one way to think about it. How does a person become 70 pounds overweight? Now again, please don't hear me likening overweight with sin or anything else. I realize that I'm on really thin ice right now, but just, just, just humor me for a second. How, how, do, how do you get there? How do you get 15 pounds overweight? It's possible to put on 15 pounds in six months. Is it likely? What's more likely? Put on a pound this year and a half pound next year and a pound and a half the next year. It's, it's, it's little tiny math. 
It's the daily leads to the dream works against us. And suddenly, you're an old guy like me and you're 30 pounds overweight. See, part of the why behind Lent is to recognize sin doesn't always show up with a sledgehammer. Sometimes it just creeps in and what we're gonna do is we're gonna create this space over an extended amount of time where we just go, hey, hey Lord, is there something going on in me? Is there some habit that I'm not even conscious of anymore? I'm just gonna create space so that you can begin to talk to me about that. So what I want you to hear is that Lent, it's, it's designed as a training camp. Sustainable, no. Intentional, yes. Why Lent? I just want to summarize it because I wanted to be really clear. Number one, it's learning to tell your flesh no. Uh, uh, learning to tell your flesh no is a learned skill and required for the Christian life. Number two, God is mostly found, most easily found in the wilderness. And number three, Sin creeps and it seeps. When? When Lent? Next slide. In the Western church, and I say that because as a Protestant, I'm glad to do the grocery store version of church practices and traditions. It's different in the East. In the West, uh, Lent is is a 40-day season. Uh, But the other thing, and frankly, I love this part of the Roman Western tradition. In the West, they take Sundays off. There's this idea of you don't dare fast on the Lord's Day. So that's a, that's a day of feasting. That's a day of celebrating. So the reason we get to Ash Wednesday is because we've got to add, what is it, four Sundays in that lead up to that, or I forget how many, but we've got to add those back. So the 40 days starts on Ash Wednesday, but every ensuing Sunday is like carnival. Like you can eat all the, all the chicken you want on, on every Sunday moving forward. The East doesn't do that, uh, by the way. How Lent? How do we do that? And, and really my design this morning was recognizing that this is so culturally weird for so many of you. We purposely went like, okay, let's go a couple weeks out before Ash Wednesday so that we can create space for conversation and prayer and interaction so that you can decide whether or not you want to do this and what that would look like. How do you do it? Here'd be my two cents. One, something with food. Ideally something you're reminded of every day if not several times a day. I don't think it's... Uh, well, how do I say this without being a jerk? I don't think chocolate counts. <laughs> Unless you're eating it every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't mean to trivialize the sacrifice of that, but, but I, I, I think that's called nutrition, not fasting. I also don't think like video games count. Like, I think that's called growing up, not fasting. And I don't want to be a jerk there. I think there's room for sacrifice, but I'm, I'm going I'm to argue for a more purist understanding of fasting that fasting involves food and everything else is something else. But what's the design? The design is, and this is where I love the Eastern version, that all day, a couple days a week, or in their case for Lent, it's it's vegan for like 60 days. But, But we can't start there. But the idea is, whether it's every day one meal, or every day every meal, or it's a couple days a week, that that you're, again, you're you're stopping short of full, you're changing your relationship with food, you're re-exploring, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm telling you, like few things have ever shaped my paradigm more because it does change the way, like, I've, I, like hangry has been an excuse of my life my entire marriage and suddenly I'm aware like, what a lame, lame excuse for being a jerk because my relationship with food wasn't healthy. So it's something around food, I'm gonna argue. And you can choose and I would argue like, please, please start small. You got a lifetime to, to build up to this. The second thing is then, this is I think where video games can come in. Eliminate some technology distractions to, uh, distractions to create space. If you're with us, 
In February of 2019, 2020, we did a series called Save Me For My Cell Phone. We did a lot of work from Cal Newport's research around technology. And you'll remember, one of his driving things was boredom. That the danger of our technology devices is we never have to be bored. And from a Christian perspective, the danger of that is we never have time to pray. We never commune. So my challenge would be something around food. And I'm going to, I'm kind of in this, I'm committed to the Eastern approach with that. And then something around distractions. So just to use myself as an example, my, my thing, one of my things is going to be, like, fortunately, I don't have a porn problem, and I don't say that to, to trivialize it. I'm just, I, I, I don't. I have a Denver Bronco problem, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> my, my interludes where I'm most likely to waste time, and I think if I added up the cumulative minutes in a day, it would be embarrassing, is the five minutes here and the five minutes there and the two minutes there. Where, where I'm just looking at Bronco Twitter feeds and Mileha Report and these different blogs because the NFL is phenomenal at selling a 365-day narrative. And so my thing is no Bronco news except for on Sunday. So I don't know who's going to speak, but I've got to catch up on Bronco news on Sundays during Lent. <laughs> there's the fast thing. So that's one of mine. My other one, just again to kind of throw out examples, is I've been aware for a while that the biggest distraction to my prayer time and my study time is actually shopping, Especially Amazon makes it worse. It's like, oh yeah. And I feel like I'm being productive because I'm actually like, we gotta buy those lamps for Ash Wednesday for the stage. And so suddenly I'm supposed to be studying Matthew 18 and I'm shopping for lamps on Amazon. <laughs> so my commitment is I'm not buying anything new. Like if something breaks, then I'll, I'll replace it. But I'm not, I'm not doing shopping for anything new during Lent. Here's another nuance. Uh, I don't know about you, but our family's gonna get away for a few days during spring break. And this is where I've loved my Eastern friends is, uh, and, 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 and their emphasis not being legalistic. Like, I, I'm, I'm, it's all going off. Like, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna stick with my, my, my fast during that family trip away. I think that's part of the dynamic. The other thing I've discovered, for what it's worth, and seriously, I'd love to nerd out with you on this food stuff more. But the other thing I've discovered is uh, what I do for breakfast and lunch has no impact on anybody else in my life. Those two I can control really easily. And so I think there's some low-hanging fruit as it relates to breakfast and lunch on those issues. As the band comes back up here, I, I just try to close this for this morning and make it functional. Dallas Willard, uh, my friend Chris reminded me recently that that, that whole idea I, thing that I've been talking about actually comes from the divine conspiracy. In my world, the most important book other than the Bible I've ever read. And in the first chapter, he tells this story about this F-16 fighter pilot who was training, I'm assuming this was like early 90s, he was training in, 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 the, in the desert. I don't know if there's Utah, New Mexico, wherever it was, but he was doing some flight training. And there was a point in his, in his training where his plane became inverted. It was flying upside down. But as is the nature, as you might imagine, in being a fighter pilot, he, he was actually not aware that he was upside down. He was doing such aggressive flying and so many maneuvers that there was this point where he was flying upside down, but he didn't even know he was flying upside down. And why that mattered was the next move in his training was for a strong, like, vertical shot up. He was to pull the stick back and gain a bunch of altitude very quickly, which he did. The problem was he wasn't flying right side up, he was flying inverted, and so that aggressive maneuver intended to take him up took him down and he plunged to his death into the wilderness floor. Now, at the risk of trivializing his tragic death and the loss for his family, Dallas uses that to illustrate, here's the power of ideas. That we, we can be so committed to an idea 
that's so functionally corrupted that we don't actually find out the danger behind the idea until life hits the desert floor. I guess I would submit to you, I think part of the value of Lent is it creates this intentional season where we confess to God our propensity to be inverted without knowing it. And we create space where God and his community and others, where, where, they, where they can break in and help us go, wait a minute, you're upside down. And I'd like to lead you out of that. I think that's also why we have Sunday and why we're doing communion. So as the ushers come forward, we're gonna give you a chance to grab communion. If you've not done that with us before, it's really not compulsory. We're not trying to make you feel like less of a person or even a Christian if you don't wanna do it. That's not the intent. The intent is to recognize that leaning into Jesus' body broken and blood poured out is both our calling and that which saves us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.